Joe Turner, a former Loyalist soldier in Belfast, Northern Ireland, shares his remarkable story of coming to faith whilst in prison and having his life radically turned around. Joe, it's good to chat to you. If we met you at 14, what was Belfast like then? Belfast was a completely different place. It was a place where people were together, but they were brought together because of the circumstances. I suppose some people called it the troubles. It was a place where on a daily basis when you woke up, you checked the teletext to see who had been murdered the day before. Uh, there were bombings and killings every single day. And so Belfast was a, a broken place, but it was a tight-knit community that had come together because of awful circumstances. If you were able to put in a, a short sentence, if this is possible, what exactly caused the troubles? I suppose it depends whose perspective you look at it from. Um, as you grow up, we were brought up in a Protestant working class community and our belief was that the IRA had made this decision that Northern Ireland would no longer be British and they had this campaign where they would bomb and kill to force the, the British out of Ireland. From our perspective, we were brought up, my father was a soldier, my mother was a, a gypsy, she was an English traveller, so I wasn't at home part of all that culture, but when I went out and I was in school or with your friends, basically the idea was that it was them and us. And the idea at that time was that at some stage people would have to stand up and be counted because at the time communities were so close together on a virtual daily basis, there were some horrendous things that went on every day. At 14, you got involved. What happened? How did that happen? I suppose I was angry. I was an angry young man. My mum and dad spent a lot of their time. My dad, I gave him the nickname George Foreman because he had more comebacks with my mum than anything else that I'd ever seen. They were, they were fight, they would argue. And his background being in the army and the local UDR meant that sitting on the top of a Land Rover every night watching in alleyways where young kids were standing with plastic machine guns. And it was a split second where you would perhaps take the life of a child the pressure of that was so constant all the time. Our family life was awful. And so moving from school to school and from house to house without having the ability of being able to put down roots, I was angry. I was angry because I felt like a nobody. I had no friends. I wasn't part of a, a culture or society. I had, no, I, had no, I had no friends. I didn't know how to be social with people. And so I developed this anger which was gonna come out a certain direction and at 14, I found myself being courted uh, and part of an organization where I met these guys who seemed to have everything. They were respected, they, they, they carried themselves well, people knew who they were, and they seemed to have an aura about them that if I'm honest with you, I really wanted. Mm. They recruited you? Yeah, I, I, I pretty much probably put myself forward. I, I wanted to be part of this. This scene, um, it was more of a game at that time, although when you look back, it was a pretty serious time in, in, in our country where a lot of people were losing their lives. But for us, until you came into the contact with the front line of it all, 
it was pretty much a game. So I put myself forward to be involved um, with the UVF in East Belfast. They, without going into all the detail, they put you through a, a test at 14. What was the test? Well, they wanted to understand, first of all, did you have the guts and the courage uh, to go and do something? And secondly, could you be someone that having done that would keep your mouth shut? So young men like me, for instance, you know, it could have been something like, you know, there's a gun. I want you to go into a house and, uh, and shoot a guy who's an informer. Um, the gun probably that you're given doesn't work, but you didn't realize that. So you go in to do a job only to find out that actually the gun didn't work. The guys came in and said, listen, well done. You know, you've passed the test. You're part of an organization. You know, keep your mouth shut and you'll go far. Wow, there's a fair bit to handle at 14. There was, but I suppose when you're brought up in that culture, this is something that you probably become numb to over a period of time. So although when you're personally involved in these things, it's quite different, but there's a level of excitement. It actually becomes probably quite addictive yeah. in many ways. Without wanting to glorify that time or spend a lot of time talking about it, what would the next few years look like for you? For me, I, at the age of 15, I moved into a Simon Community Hostel at the bottom of the Woodstock Road. I left home, like a lot of 15 year olds, knowing everything there was to know about life. And I moved down there and actually at the time, I lasted three days in the Simon Community Hostel. I got thrown out of there. I had a bit of an altercation with a guy and I moved into a derelict house where I stayed for the next eight months. Um, from there, I got the nickname Joe Levi, and that was because every day I had no money, and I used to go into the city centre, um, robbing pairs of Levi jeans and selling them to try and make money. And at the same time, living and building relationship with guys who were quite serious characters um, in the loyalist scene at that time. And so for me, it was a gradual thing where you're on the periphery of things to actually becoming quite seriously involved and, and ending up in prison um, a few times uh, as well. So yeah, there was quite an escalation where it started from here and it built up to getting quite, quite a lot more serious. Were you quite, you became quite senior in the organisation? I suppose I, I, I did. I, I was someone who, unlike some of the other guys who were true defenders of Ulster, I probably had an agenda and I, I was someone who, because of the, the, the life that I had lived and my upbringing, I was quite sharp and I was someone that was willing to do things that perhaps sometimes other people weren't willing to do. And there was a mixture of people. Uh, organisations are like any organisations in the world. It could be a company, it could be a church. They're made up of different types of people. So some people just want to be part of stuff. Some people have aspirations of grandeur. I always wanted to be a somebody, and I done everything that I can to be that. Unfortunately, the wrong way around. I went down a road that was the wrong way, and it wasn't until much later in life that I realized that I was a somebody. Did you feel in the organization you got to the point where you felt important? I felt important. I felt that I, ran around with a group of guys who were in charge of the organisation. They made big decisions, the things that they said people did. And actually to walk into a bar, to be part of a group of guys at that level, I enjoyed. I felt as if I had an invisibility badge on, 
So anything that we did, the police didn't seem to be able to touch you. You were able to walk about at that time with impunity, not because it was well known, but because things happened. The incidences were well known, but perhaps the people that did them weren't. And actually, you were able to, to run around and there was this feeling of, I've made it. Well, were you still angry? I was still very angry, yeah. I, I, think, I think honestly, I carried that anger for a long time, long after even coming to faith. And I read a book one time, The Purpose Driven Life, and it was only at that stage that I realized that I had a choice. I could have an anger-fueled life, or I could have a purpose-driven life. And anger was the one thing that helped me to forget about the past, because I was so focused on being angry. It fueled everything that I said and everything that I'd done, and I actually, I enjoyed it. In that period of time, if somebody said to you, God, faith, belief, Jesus, what would you have said? Nuts, absolutely bonkers. Um, I knew my mum my used to trail me along to Sunday school. Uh, there was a mission in East Bread Street, and my mum used to take me around every Sunday afternoon, whether I liked it or not. And um, at that time, there was a blind minister, and the blind minister gave me a Bible. It was a wee blue rainbow Bible. And inside the cover, it had a reading. It was Numbers chapter 6, 24 and 25. The Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face to shine upon thee and be gracious to thee. And actually, at that time, it didn't mean anything. It was not till later in life that it had meaning. But God, Jesus, it just wasn't on my radar. At that time, it was simply God and Ulster. It wasn't God at all. We're sitting in the church that you now run and that you're the, the minister here at the church. So something radical happened. So let's, talking about that, you were, in, you were in jail several times, but then you were in for several years. What happened in that period? At that time, I was really angry. I was angry because I'd learned a lot in life. I was going through a period where my cousin had been murdered, he was only 22, and I wanted to really get involved in the circumstances around that. I was angry because that had been stopped before it got to the stage where I had accomplished what I, what I wanted to do. And when I went to prison this time, I was so angry. I was angry just at everybody. I was angry with myself. I was angry because I'd met a lovely girl who I loved and I'd let her down. And I was embarrassed. And I suppose I went through this stage where the prison officers didn't like me. The feelings were mutual. I didn't call them prison officers, they were screws. And I didn't like people in authority, people wearing a uniform. And my attitude towards them was serious anger. I used to give them abuse every morning. As soon as I came out of my cell, look at the state of you, you know, you would never get a job anywhere else. Look at you, you're an alcoholic. You know, you stink of drink at this time of the morning. You haven't even shaven. No one would give you a job. If you didn't work in here, nobody would ever give you a job. And so no one really liked me at all, which suited me okay, because I didn't like them much either. But I went in this, this stage where everyone that I came into contact with, I left them with some type of impression. A lot of times I was so angry. There was a lot of fighting, a lot of violence, a lot of planning of ideas and, and, and things that I wanted to do and things that I wanted to achieve 
So yeah, I, I wouldn't have been a very popular person, um, certainly not with the prison system at that time. Uh, they wouldn't have liked me at all. How, how did you get in any sort of connection with, a, with the idea that there's a God that loves you? Back in the day, there was a man called Val English who used to come into the prisons and he played a guitar. He was a good Baptist man and he had a joy about him that was so real. And when he used to come into the prison, people used to avoid him um, because he was so happy. And, and so it was the case in McGilligan. When he came into the landing, you know, you used to stay out of the way or go into the ablutions, that place where nobody wanted to go if they weren't actually using the loo. And it was that place where you're safe and secure away from him. And actually, um, there was a, a guy from Prison Fellowship, Norman McCorkle, who came in and he wanted to talk to people about Jesus. And I really didn't have any interest, although I knew all about God. I didn't want it to be me, and I didn't want it to be personal. And it didn't feel personal to me because I was so angry. But I suppose I went on this journey where I began to explore what that looked like. And I suppose it came to the stage for me it became more personal actually because at one stage the, the, the prison had taken me out of the general population under a thing called Rule 32 where you would be put on your own in solitary confinement. That wasn't a new thing for me. I did that every week. You know, I used to throw TVs at people and, and do some not very nice things and you were adjudicated by the governor. So most weeks I was in solitary confinement but this time they got fed up with me and I didn't realise, but I was going to be there for quite a while. So that was on the 17th of December. By the 31st of December, I was distraught. I couldn't understand. I could hardly eat. I couldn't settle. I couldn't sleep. And I'm flicking through the Bible, and I'm, I'm thinking, where do you start to read? Because I knew it. Adam and Eve, Abraham and Sarah, Lot. I, I, knew, I knew all about it. But as I flick through the Bible, half the pages of the Living Bible have been ripped out because people used them for rolly papers. And I didn't want to read it, so I put it down, and it was coming close to midnight on New Year's Eve. And I really felt that night that something was going on inside of me. And it was virtually like a, like a voice in my head where God was saying to me, you know, I love you. And that wasn't something I necessarily wanted to hear. I wanted to hear, you are a bad person and you are rotten and miserable and I need to deal with you. But it was as if God was saying to me, not that I was bad, but that he loved me. And he wanted to make me the husband and the father that he had always created me to be. And a bit like Jonah, you know, I want you to be this, but you ended up going so far this direction and I want to bring you back. At that time, I didn't believe the timing was right for me. I had a lot of scores to settle. I'd made a bit of a reputation in the prison and the time wasn't right for me. So I sort of said, Lord, I know I need to get right with you. I know this is something that I need to do. I believe that, but the time's not right. So give us six weeks till I get out of here. I'll make things right. And then from there, maybe we could have another conversation and we could, and we could work this out. But it was as if God said to me, Joe, it's always been about me and you. And actually no one else matters. And if you get things right with me, I promise you, everything will work out. You just need to trust me. And the verses that, that came into my head was, you know, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So actually at that stage, I cried out to God, literally. 
the floodgates opened. I must have cried for an hour and a half. And from there, things began to change dramatically. In that moment, did you feel you've let yourself go into God's hands? Is you put your life into God's hands or was it just an experience of emotion and love? I felt as if that was the time when Jesus wasn't just my saviour, but that he was my Lord. That, uh, you know, John 14 explains to us not only that I am the way, the truth and the life, but in my house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. So actually for me, in my life, there were always rooms that I would let God into, but it was as if there were a number of rooms where you're not welcome, because I enjoy holding on to these things in my life. And all of a sudden, it was this realization that if God was to be my savior, he would also need to be my Lord and be in charge of everything. So the tears came from a sense of relief that actually I am no longer in control. There's someone that I can trust who loves me, who has this plan for my life. And that was, it was a sense of relief that I didn't have to be angry anymore. I could have someone who promised to be the friend that stuck closer than a brother, that I could be in charge of everything. And the sense that he knew me, he knew the worst of me, but he still loved me. That was the most incredible feeling in the world. It's great to have that moment, but you're in solitary confinement. You've got a reputation to hold. You've got scores you want to settle. What do you then do? Surrender. So I, my wife had left me in a Bible, a study Bible, and I got my radio back. So from there, I began, there was a pastor, Pastor McCall from Whitewell Church, and he was on UCB radio every day. So I spent every day recording his word for the day. It was 15 or 20 minutes long on the radio. I spent the next day dissecting that and going through it where I prayed beforehand. And actually, I used to record, it was gospel time on downtown radio on a Saturday night and everyone in solitary confinement, they were literally round the twist with me because I used to play this gospel music and a lot of it was, it, it wasn't like some of this new contemporary stuff, it was like the Gaithers and Reverend William McRae. I mean, it was, looking back, it was some pretty hot, heavy stuff. But I was beginning to learn who I was in the light of who God was and what Jesus done for me. So I began in an oasis for me, in this small room where I could be alone with God, I began to realize who I was and get a sense of my own identity. And as that changed, I suppose it got to the end of, it was the end of August actually, and the governor came to see me one day and he said, look Joe, we're gonna take you out of solitary confinement. You're gonna be an orderly in the prison hospital. That was quite strange because people like me didn't get orderly jobs for starters. Governor's orderlies and hospital orderlies was jobs generally for sex offenders who could be trusted around that environment. I was seen as a terrorist, so you, you didn't give me that type of job. So when I went into the prison hospital, I thought, it's quite strange, but I'm liking it. You know, it seems, maybe it's an opportunity. I, I thought it was good. So I, I met this guy who was the PO and he said to me, look, Joe, you've been brought in here. The, the prison are trying to work out how you go from someone who is fighting all the time and is so angry to someone who's 
putting everybody's head round the bend, listening to this gospel music every day. And every time they lift your flap up, you're reading your Bible or reading a book and you become quite pleasant with people. The prison feel you've had a breakdown and we need to psychologically assess you to, to see what's happened. So I told them that I'd had an encounter with Jesus um, on the New Year's Eve and that I'd been left different. And he told me, praise God, I'm a Christian myself. And you know, that's fabulous. Maybe you and I could chat about this and, and see what's happened. And you know, I'm really encouraged to hear that God is in the business of, of doing this stuff still, you know. It's a radical reformation. Yeah, I suppose at the time, I didn't realize how radical actually it was, but things progressed from there. And I had this real burden. As I had read the Bible, I'd learned so much. And I wanted other people to be able to do that as well. So the first parole that I got, I spent it with my family. The second parole that I got, I'd done a sponsored cycle from McGilligan Prison to Mountjoy Prison in Dublin. And we raised enough money to buy Bibles for every prisoner in Northern Ireland. And that was a tremendous thing. You know, you were getting the Word of God into the hands of people because it was that that transformed me. It wasn't music, it wasn't the chats with people or some of the books that I read. It was just the Word of God that began to change me from the inside out. And that was the thing that made the transformation because as we know, salvation is instant, but the transformation can be a process. And for me, that process really started in earnest. In fact, the next year, I thought it was great. I bought this carbon fiber bike and um, it was a giant F1. And the following year, we'd done a cycle from Coleraine to Cork. And um, it was a four day journey, very difficult, if I'm honest. After the third day, I nearly collapsed and didn't even do the fourth day. But we raised money and we bought Bibles for the prisons in Rwanda and Sierra Leone and um, with a prison officer who was part of the, the trip. So again, it was, in my head, it was like a penance. I was paying back something and it felt like I needed to do that. And that probably continued for quite a while. So Joe, you've come to the place of faith, you're out of prison, but you said before you, you were angry, but that took a while for you to get over being angry. Do you remember when you let that go? It was probably about four years ago. I, I lived a life with a cloud that was constantly above my head. And I was angry because I felt that perhaps in the past, if I'd had opportunities that other people had, then my life could have been different. I was angry because people, although my reputation in the world was, was great and people enjoyed it and I enjoyed it, but now you're coming into the church, I was still angry because I felt as if I didn't fit in. I didn't fit in in the world because I'd changed, but I didn't fit in in the church because I'd changed. And so I was this crazy radical guy who loved Jesus, who wanted to tell people about him. But actually, I didn't even seem to fit in in the church. And I wondered why that was. People were, although they enjoyed hearing stories of your past, but you weren't often accepted for who you were and for what God had done. And so I felt, I felt alone. I felt angry that people wouldn't accept me for who I was and that actually my background 
meant that I had such a love for God, you know, like the Apostle Paul, he, he who had been forgiven much would love much. And I felt as if I didn't fit in. And it actually took me on a journey. I, I became part of a church not far from here. And um, it was a church that had this real extreme grace message, which actually at the time, I thought the guy was completely nuts. But I came to the stage where understanding the grace of God meant that I had been forgiven. I just never forgiven myself. And I was embarrassed because I'd done some awful things and I was embarrassed that I'd hurt people, I'd hurt my family, I'd hurt the people that had been involved in all the things that I'd done. And it, was, it wasn't until then that I forgave myself. And instead of doing things from a penance perspective, I began to do things out of the overflow of what God was doing inside of me. And, and a bit like, you know, I think it's Ezekiel 38 where you read about the rivers of healing or the rivers of blessing that come from the right side of the altar. And I wanted the, the waters to swim in, even though I couldn't swim. But I, I wanted that feeling of being in the center of where God wanted me and at his mercy, re, swimming in the depths of the presence of God. And it was only when I forgave myself and I moved forward, that was whenever I began to be able to serve God out of this overflow of what God was doing inside of me. And the anger, although if I'm honest, I do have periods where it, it raises its head, but actually it's more of a joy and a love for God and for people. And the overflow of what he does is the most incredible feeling in the world. We're sitting in the church, right in the area that you are active um, as a paramilitary. What do you want to see in, that, in this environment now? I want revival. Uh, for me, I want the people of this area to encounter the God that arrested me from where I was, who gave me hope and who gave me a future. And I want to see heaven touch earth in this area. I realize that I can't do that, but I have a friend who walks with me every day he reminds me that he loves me and I know that the power of God, if it can transform my life, I can do it for other people. I've had the joy of watching young people, their moms and their dads, their friends and their family come to know the Lord Jesus as their saviour in this place. And I understand that the church is not the building. I want to get back to being the ecclesia, the called out ones who are just totally crazy and radical, who respond intentionally with the gospel. And I have seen even a transformation in our church environment here where people have responded to the gospel, who are discipled and who learn. We're raising up an army of believers who walk every day with God themselves, who actually aren't just being led by me. What's actually going on is that they're being introduced to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords in a church environment where they're not manipulated. They're simply exposed to the Spirit of Almighty God that helps them to be everything that God created them to be. That's the type of movement or revolution that I want to be part of. And my hope and my prayer 
is that the legacy of the Troubles, where many people are still in prison, who have continued with this, this fight to be Irish, this fight to be British, this fight for something, my prayer is that back in 1859, we've seen one of the greatest revivals in Ulster, where 100,000 people were added to the church. It's my prayer that people's identities would be found in Christ, where it's not the flag that flies from the lamppost that's important. It's the flag that flies from your heart that says that Jesus is in residence there. That could be the future. So Joe, this, this series is called Jesus the Game Changer. So for you, how is Jesus the Game Changer? It's hard to comprehend for someone like me who always wanted to be a somebody, who went into society, an angry young man, who fought against the tide, who done things that ordinarily people don't do, just to be a somebody. Jesus was the game changer for me because I came to know the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords who came, set aside all of his glory and who would have come just for me. That made me a somebody. I realized that I was royalty because I was the son of a king and he came and even though he knew the worst about me, he still loved me. And he had this plan for my life that I have only begun to be part of. So actually for me today, I have went from being someone who worked so hard to try to be a someone who stumbled across the God of all creation, who loved me enough do not let me continue to be the way that I was. So actually, I have begun on a road of complete and utter transformation. But the news is so good and so dramatic, you couldn't keep it to yourself. I mean, if I today knew the cure for cancer, what I'd do is I'd quit my job and I would travel all around the world sharing it with people. But cancer only kills your body. Sin is the ruin for eternity. So actually, by preaching the gospel, by doing the basics properly, by telling people about Jesus, I mean, the love of God is crucially important. But we're not a hippie commune. We're, just, we're not just called to love people. We've got to tell them the truth because the Bible says that the truth sets you free. So if we preach the gospel, as we continue to do, we'll continue to see people surrender their hearts and their lives to him and that changes not just time now, but the rest of eternity. My pastor used to always say, you know, this life is a training ground for the life that is, that is to come. And I'm preparing people for eternity because when they understand the gravity of who Jesus is, then they begin to understand their own identity in the light of who he is and what he did for them. And that grace, that unmerited favor that I didn't deserve and they didn't deserve can transform their lives now and prepare them for eternity. I'm definitely going to heaven. I'm absolutely sure about that. And I want to make sure that on my way there, that I take as many people with me as I can. We're raising up an army of believers who love Jesus, who love his word and who know it. And out of the overflow of what he does inside of us, his power and his presence, I pray would change our community here in Sydney in East Belfast and right across the island of Ireland 
because at this moment in time, there are many reasons why people need to have an encounter with Jesus. Jesus is a name simply today that people mention when they stub their toe or hit their finger with a hammer. But to me, he's everything. It's pulling me 